Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Uh, Every so often, somebody will, will stop me after a service at Christ Community Church, and they will say in a uh, conspiratorial tone of voice, something like this. They'll say, uh, I've got a relative, or I've got a friend from work, or I've got a buddy visiting me, a college buddy visiting me next weekend, and they're coming to church with me. Now, they haven't been to church in ages. I can't believe I got them to come. And then they'll pat me on the back, this person, and nod their head and say something like, like this, I just wanted you to know. Now, message received, okay? The, the message is, it took me a lot of work to get this person to come to church. Don't screw up, okay? <laughs> you know, bring your A game, Pastor Jim, next weekend, because there's a lot riding on this. And I want you to know that I want to do my best for the guests you bring, and I want to do my best for those of you who are regular attenders. I want to do that week after week. And I want Christ Community Church to be at its best, always. Not just at weekend services, but in our ministries throughout the course of the week. Because people have high expectations of what a church should be. But even more importantly, Jesus has high expectations for his church. You know, Jesus, who launched this this church movement, he has high standards for what the church ought to do and what the church ought to be. And we're going to take a look at those standards today in a passage in Matthew chapter 16. So I want you to turn to that first book of your New Testament, Matthew 16. We're beginning a four-part series today called Church on the Rock, A Place You Can Trust. Church on the Rock, a place you can trust. You know, it used to be that people trusted churches, right? Churches were the pillars of the communities. You you knew exactly where the churches were in a town when you entered the town because you could see their steeples poking up into the air. They were the highest landmarks in every town. The crosses outlined against the sky. And the pastors of these churches, they were among the, the city's most prominent citizens, the most admired, the most respected for their wisdom and their godliness and their compassion. And and the people, you know, at the the height of church attendance, 60 to 70% of the population went to church on a regular basis, went every week, sometimes in the middle of the week as well. And even those who didn't go to church, they felt like they should go to church. You know what I'm saying? But that was some years ago. So what's been happening in church world more recently? Well, the church is no longer held in high esteem. Outsiders look at church and they see priests who sexually abuse children. They see megachurch pastors who are ousted from their their pulpits because of improprieties with women. They see buildings that are extravagant while the poor and their needs are being ignored. You know, they they see Christianity getting mixed with right-wing politics or left-wing politics. They hear messages that don't seem to relate to people's everyday lives. And so the percentage of outsiders, non-church attenders, continues to grow. Over the last 10 to 15 years, it's accelerated. It's growing by leaps and bounds. And insiders... 
Churchgoers, although they're still loyal to the church, the fact of the matter is church doesn't play as central a role in their lives as it used to. Research now indicates that over the last 10 to 15 years, there has been a mega trend in our country that people who are loyal to the church who used to go three or four weekends a month now go two weekends or less a month because there are now other competing priorities for their weekend time. Well, in spite of the dismal picture of the church that I've been painting for you over the last few minutes, over the next four weeks, we're going to be describing a vastly different kind of church, the kind of church that Jesus envisioned when he launched this movement 2,000 years ago, as recorded in Matthew 16. Jesus had, in fact, Jesus still has high expectations for the church. So today we're going to look at Jesus' original game plan, four activities, four activities that Jesus expects every church to engage in. If you haven't taken the outline from your program, I encourage you to do so and write these down. Let me read to you the opening verses of today's scripture passage. Now the word church, which pops up for the first time in the New Testament in the text we're looking at today, you won't see that word until verse 18, and I'm going to... I'm going to begin by reading verses 13 to 16. So follow along as I read. It says, when Jesus, Matthew 16, 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Speaking of himself, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And we'll stop right there. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God, for your word. Let me give you some historical background. You know, we teach a method of Bible study, C-O-M-A. C stands for context, historical background. So what's the historical background for this passage? Well, Jesus has taken his 12 closest followers, his disciples, on a field trip. They're camping out in a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, Jesus' normal stomping grounds. So they've gone here for a strategic reason. Jesus is about to launch the church movement. And so he wants to give his disciples a a pep talk. He wants to vision cast with his team. And he chooses Caesarea Philippi specifically for the location to do this vision cast. Okay, Caesarea Philippi, very prominent city in that part of the world at the time. Named after both the Roman emperor, Caesar, Caesarea, as well as King Herod, Herod the Great. He had four sons. One of his sons was named Philip, so named after one of his sons, Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. It was a a world-class city, cosmopolitan city, but it was also a place where there was Greek god worship going on. This was a worship community. This was where people would go to worship the Greek gods of the day. So Jesus takes his team into enemy territory, spiritually speaking, to make his big announcement, to launch the church movement. And he begins by revealing to them his true identity. Surrounded by rival gods, Jesus is about to reveal himself to be the one and only God the Savior and King of the world. 
it's all going to go down in this place called Caesarea Philippi. The name before Caesarea Philippi, by the way, was Panius, the Greek god Pan. So Panius, amidst his rivals, Jesus is about to launch the church by revealing his true identity. The focus is on Jesus. So he asked his disciples in the opening exchange here, verse 13, so who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say I am? And they, they recap the word on the street. They say, well, you know, some people believe you're John the Baptist. Now, this is interesting because John the Baptist was dead at this point in, in the story. Uh, John the Baptist had spoken out against a, another one of Herod the Great's sons, a guy named Antipas, who was fooling around with his brother's wife. And John the Baptist called him out on it, called him an adulterer. Antipas didn't like that, so he had John the Baptist beheaded. And now people are listening to Jesus. Jesus appears on the scene, and he sounds a lot like John the Baptist. And some people are wondering, is this like John the Baptist back from the dead? Ooh. Other people are saying, Jesus' disciples go on, other people are saying, maybe you're Elijah, the prophet. Now, why Elijah? Well, in Old Testament times, it was prophesied that when God would send the world a savior, there would be a forerunner, there would be a PR man who would arrive on the scene, an Elijah-like figure ahead of time to announce the coming of this savior. So maybe Jesus, maybe Jesus is this front man, okay? Maybe he is the one going in advance of the coming savior. And still other people said, well, maybe not Elijah the prophet, but he's certainly a prophet, sounds like a prophet in a long line of prophets that stretch all the way back to Jeremiah. Okay, after the disciples finished recapping all the popular speculative theories about Jesus' identity, Jesus looks them in the eye and he says, verse 15, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter responded for the, the, the rest of the group, verse 16, he says, you are the Messiah. By the way, that's the Hebrew word for the Greek word Christ. So if your Bible says Christ, same thing, you are the the Messiah, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That was a mouthful. That was quite a declaration, and it was spot on. Peter declared Jesus to be, first of all, the Messiah. This is an Old Testament title to describe the coming deliverer that God promised to send the world. Now, Jewish folks who'd been reading this prophecy for years, they, you know, they just understood this to be a political deliverer, would someday come and free them from enemy powers, enemy armies, enemy despots. One of the prophets, though, a guy named Isaiah, Isaiah said, no, there's a bigger deliverance that we're all in need of. And when Messiah comes, he's going to deliver us from this much bigger enemy. It's the enemy of sin, and with sin comes death, so the enemy of death. You say, why does death come with sin? Well, you know, we all sin. Sin separates us from a holy God. Unfortunately, that holy God happens to be the giver of life. So if, if you're disconnected from the giver of life by your sins, the result, the consequence is death. And Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53 that one day the Messiah would come. Isaiah is saying this in 700 B.C., and this Messiah would deliver people from sin and death by dying in their place, by taking the death their sins deserve. Well, Peter declares Jesus to be this promised Messiah. He says, this is the Messiah. This is the guy Isaiah said would come. Now, now 
the word Messiah, the title, also had some regal overtones because some of the prophets said, well, this Messiah would be a king and eventually, you know, he would come in the line of King David, Israel's most famous king, but eventually his kingdom would spread not just over Israel, but over the entire planet, over the earth, and his kingdom would be an eternal kingdom. It would never end. And here's Peter saying, this is the, God, this is the Messiah, the Savior and the King. And then Peter, just to add some more oomph to the whole thing, he adds the expression, the Son of the living God. Now, don't forget where he's saying this. He's saying it in Caesarea Philippi. He's saying it in Panius amidst all these rival gods. And Peter says, all these powerless, dead gods, I want to introduce you to Jesus, the all-powerful son of the living God. Wow. And it was against the backdrop of this declaration that Jesus launched the church. And so a core expectation of all churches to come is that they would focus on Jesus because Jesus is what church is all about. If a church is not about Jesus, all about Jesus, then it's not a church. And that goes for Christ's community church. We do a lot of things around here. Yeah, we, we like to care for the poor and meet the needs of the poor through our community impact ministries. But that is not the central focus of our church. Jesus is. You know, we like to mentor young people, uh, kids and students, introduce them to some good moral training, character. Parents love us for that. But that's not our central focus. Our central focus is Jesus. We want to get kids connected to Jesus. Now, we, we, we love to provide community around here because we know that people are dying relationally. They, you know, they want connection with other people. And so we got community groups. And if you're single, we got all sorts of single ministries. And if you're into sports, we got sports. And, because we want you to experience community. But that's not our central focus. Our central focus is Jesus. We want to connect people with Jesus as Savior and King. And that connection happens when people surrender their lives to Jesus. Have you ever surrendered your life to Jesus? We go back for a moment to verse 15 of today's passage. Jesus asks his disciples, but what about you? Who do you say I am? If we were reading this in the original Greek text, it's, it's very interesting. It's awkward if you're an English speaker. Because literally the translation here, Jesus puts the word you at the beginning of his question. And it's just kind of awkward in English. He literally says, you, who me say I am? You. See, he's getting in the faces of his disciples. He wants to know what are they going to do with him. And again, this is what we love to do at Christ Community Church. We love to get in people's faces and we say, what are you going to do with Jesus? Hey, when are you going to surrender your life to Jesus? When are you going to stop holding Jesus at arm's length? When are you going to acknowledge that Jesus is Savior and King? Your Savior and King. When are you going to go public with your identification with Jesus by getting baptized, which is how believers and followers of Jesus do it? That's how they say to everybody, that internal decision I made you know, in my heart to surrender to Christ, we go public in baptism. Our next baptism is at the end of October. You know, if you've surrendered to Christ but you've never gone public, when are you going to get baptized? 
When are you going to live as if Jesus is the king and the leader of your life instead of you're the leader of your life? When are you going to... When are you going to get behind Jesus, follow Jesus? The focus around here is on Jesus. That's Jesus' high expectation that his church would focus on himself. Second expectation. Jesus expects churches to teach the Bible. Okay, back to Matthew 16. Peter has just declared that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And what's Jesus' response? Look at verse 17. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So when Peter correctly identifies Jesus, who gets the credit for the identification? Now, does Peter, Jesus say to Peter, way to go, Peter, you you know, you figured me out. Yes, I am the Messiah, and you, dude, are an incredibly discerning person. No, 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 Peter didn't reach the right conclusions about Jesus because he was smart enough or moral enough or spiritual enough to get it. Who who gets the credit for Peter's insight? Look at the end of verse 17. Who gets the credit? Call it out. God does, the Heavenly Father. God had revealed this truth about Jesus' identity to Peter. God the Father had told Peter about God the Son. Now, you'll hear me say this repeatedly at Christ Community Church. There are only two ways, friends. There are only two ways to arrive at our conclusions about who God is and what God is like. You know, who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit, and what God is like. Two ways to reach those conclusions. It's either speculation or revelation. Okay, a lot of people's view of God, a lot of people's view of Jesus is pure speculation. You know know this when you hear them say, well, I like to think God is like such and such. Or I like to believe that Jesus would do this or do do that. What is this sort of speculation based upon? Nothing but personal hunches. Totally unreliable. I mean, imagine if your name is Joe, okay? And Joe, you and I have never met. You have never spoken to me. But you, you overhear me going around uh, one day saying to people, well, I like to think Joe is like this. Or, you know, Joe, really, you, you'd be indignant. You'd be say, saying, you know, who do you think you are, Pastor Jim? I've never even spoken to you. What makes you think you know who I am? And what many people think they know about God, what they think they know about Jesus, is pure speculation. So what's the other way for people to get to know God? Revelation. What what if God made an effort to personally reveal himself to us? What if God told us about himself? What if God wrote this revelation down in a book and gave us the book? I mean, wouldn't that be cool? Because all the details, all the specifics you want to know, what better way to learn them than to, than to have them put in writing by God himself? Well, around Christ Community Church, we believe that's exactly what God's done and that the book is the Bible. I don't have the time today to give you the hard evidences for why we believe this is a credible, trustworthy, uh, accurate revelation of God. We've done entire series on that subject. But there's good evidence to believe that this is the book in which God has revealed himself to us. So if you're still exploring the faith, okay, if you're not yet a Christ follower, where do you begin? Around here, we suggest you begin in the Gospel of Mark. 
Okay, there are four short biographies of Jesus in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. We say, start with Mark because it's the shortest. It's just 16 chapters long. Each chapter takes about five to 10 minutes to read. In a couple of weeks' time, reading five to 10 minutes a day, you could read through the Gospel of Mark. So get started. In fact, when you make your decision to surrender to Christ around here at one of our weekend services, we, we let you know we got a gift for you at the back of the zone you're sitting in right now. Okay, across our four campuses, our auditoriums are broken up into zones. At the back of every zone, there's a table, and on the table are what we call next steps packets. They're for people who want to take next steps in a relationship with Jesus, having just surrendered to him. And one of the key components in a next steps packet is a Bible with a bookmark in the Gospel of Mark. You want to know where to start reading the Bible? Start with the Gospel of Mark. You know, just recently... I went online, I found uh, this uh, really cool little booklet, red cover, bright red cover, that's the Gospel of Mark, and I bought 50 of them, so I could start giving them away to people. So last week, I uh, got a flat tire on my bicycle, so I had my bike into the bike shop, the guy finishes it, and I give him a Gospel of Mark, and I say something like this, I say, hey, I'm a real fan of the Bible, it, it has changed my life because it's helped me to get to know God. And this is an ex excerpt, it's a portion of the Bible called the Gospel of Mark, it's the story of Jesus, I want you to have it, it's my gift to you. And he looked at me and he said, that'll be $21.95 for the flat. You know? <laughs> now, he looked at me and he said, well, thanks, thanks, that was it. And my prayer for the next couple of days, I prayed, God, help him to pick it up and read it because that Gospel of Mark could transform his life. So that's where you begin. Now... If you're going on, if you've surrendered to Christ and you want to grow with him, there are 65 other books in the Bible besides the Gospel of Mark, and we want to expose you to all of them. Now, we teach the Bible at Christ Community Church. Last weekend, I poked my head in to give a welcome to 80 to 100 people at the St. Charles campus who were going through Begin to Belong at one of our services, our, our membership class. And one of the guys uh, you know, who I met with there, he said to me, uh, you know, when I asked how long you've been coming to the church, he said a couple of years. I said, how did you start coming? He said, well, it's interesting. We were going to church kind of dutifully at another church in the community, but didn't hear much about the Bible, didn't really learn the Bible. And he said, at, at work, a guy at work said, hey, my wife and I do a couple's Bible study. You and your wife want to join us? And I said, sure. And we started to come, and oh my goodness, this book started to come alive to us. And we wanted to know, where does this guy go to church? And he's at Christ Community Church. So we showed up, and it's been amazing what's happened in our relationship with God as we've got into this book. Yeah, this, this book is, points us to the one who is Savior and King, Son of the living God. Yeah, we encourage people not only to hear it taught on the weekends, we say, you need to read it every day. You need to pick, pick it up and read a little bit every day. In fact, we put together a Bible reading schedule that will take you a little bit at a time through the entire Bible over four years. We call it the Bible Savvy Reading Schedule. We even created a journal, a spiral-bound journal. A new journal comes out every four months, three times a year, where you could record every day your insights and an application for your life. Just a, a couple of lines. The new journal has now come out. You could pick it up at any one of our bookstores in a hard copy. You, you could just download our phone app, and you could get it electronically every day. The reading schedule, along with some space to record what God is saying to you. 
Now, some of our community groups, this is the study they do. Many of our groups just use the Bible Savvy Reading Schedule. By the way, there's a Bible Savvy Reading Schedule for children called Epic. So if you're a mom or dad and you, you haven't tuned into Epic yet, at three of our four campuses, we do a midweek time for kids, a program called Epic that builds on the daily Bible reading you're doing with your children. I don't I don't know why any parent wouldn't take advantage of Epic on Wednesday night if you've got a grade school child. So our group, my group, my men's group, eight guys, we meet on Wednesday mornings early in the morning at a local coffee shop. And this is our plan of attack throughout the week. We're reading a little bit, following the Bible reading schedule of the Bible every day, jotting down an insight application to our lives. And when we come together, we share them. So this year, I added a couple guys to the group. One of the guys, brand new to the Bible, So I wanted to make sure I met with him ahead of time. We launched our group this last Wednesday for the fall. I wanted to make sure I got got with him ahead of time and he knew what he was doing because right now the Bible reading schedule has us in the book of Job. And it's, you know, it's a little difficult book. And so I went over with this guy how we do the Bible savvy stuff and how to get something out of the Bible. And then I gave him some background for Job. And by the way, I told him what I'll tell you now. uh, If you've never discovered this website, Jot this down, the Bible Project, okay, the Bible Project. Any book of the Bible that you're starting to read, Google the Bible Project slash the name of the book, the Bible Project slash Job, and there will be a five to seven minute video that, that will recap the book's contents for you. It's amazing. So I gave the guy all this information, and then a couple days later, I'm wondering, oh gosh, I'm wondering how he's doing with Job. And that day, unsolicited, I got a text from him. He said, just one line, I'm all over this Job guy. <laughs> Good. He gets it. He gets it. This is, you know, this is the direction we want to point people. We want to teach the Bible. We want, want your life to be saturated with the Bible so you get to know this God. If you're a community group leader, one of our 300-some community groups, make sure your group is getting into Scripture. If you're, you're following a Christian book that has a Bible verse here and there, get them into the Bible itself, you know, in a systematic way. Teach the Bible. Number three. High expectations Jesus has for the church. Here's the third, that the church would confront false gods. That the church would confront false gods. Back to Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus is still speaking to Peter, and he says, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my, my what? Call it out. Church. I will build my church. Now listen to this, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Hades is the realm of the dead, and the condemned dead, it's a place called hell, which is why some versions translate the last part of the verse, and the gates of hell will not overcome my church. Wow. Now the big question that Bible scholars have wrestled with for centuries is this. What did Jesus mean by on this rock? I'll build my church. What was Jesus referring to? And there are basically three views out there, okay? One view is that Jesus was referring to Peter. Okay, some Bible scholars point out that Jesus has just recently changed Peter's name. Peter was Simon, and he's now Peter, which means, look at the footnote of your Bible. What what does Peter mean? Rock, rock, or stone. So Jesus has just changed, changed his name. Everybody's now calling him Rocky, right? 
And this was, this was long before Dwayne Johnson got called the rock, okay? Peter's the rock. And so Jesus is saying, on this, on Rocky here, I'm going to build my church. Now, this is quite possibly an accurate interpretation here because elsewhere in the New Testament, we read in passages like Ephesians 2, verse 20, that the apostles, Jesus' original followers, were the foundation stones of the church. They were the pioneers. They got things started. So maybe that's what Jesus is saying. And Peter, you're going to pioneer this movement I'm launching, you know, the church movement. Now, now unfortunately, the, you know, Roman Catholic theology has taken this a little bit too far, and they, they say this is one of the passages that teaches that Peter is the first pope. You know, he is this venerated, exalted leader who speaks infallibly. And my reaction is, Peter? Really? Like, because if you know anything about Peter from the rest of the New Testament, the guy is an absolute knucklehead on occasion. You know, he doesn't speak infallibly. He speaks with his foot in his mouth. So, so I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's you know, quite possible to interpret it here that Peter is a foundation stone of the church, but Pope, absolutely not. Second view. You know, so, some Bible scholars point out that maybe uh, Jesus is speaking of himself here. On this rock, I will build my church. Now, unfortunately, the Bible doesn't come with hand motions. Because if it came with hand motions, this is what it would look like. Okay, watch carefully here. Jesus is talking to Peter in verse 18. And he says, you are Peter, pointing at Peter. And on this rock, pointing at himself, I will build my church. Now, we don't know if that's the hand motions Jesus used because they're not recorded here. But that's quite possibly the case. You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Third view. Third view is a lot like the second view, but instead of uh, the rock being Jesus, it's the truth about Jesus. I mean, keep in mind what Peter has just declared. Peter has just declared, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus nods his head and says, you got that right, Peter. And on this declaration, on the truth you just declared, I'm going to build my church. Now, I lean toward the second or third view of on this rock. I think that Jesus was talking about himself or the truth about himself as Messiah and son of the living God. Why do I go with those interpretations? Remember where Jesus was with his disciples. Caesarea Philippi, Panius, where all sorts of Greek gods were being worshipped. Every, every time Sue and I lead a group to Israel, you know, we've been there five times now. Last spring, we took another group of 50 from Christ Community Church. We always visit Panius, Caesarea Philippi, because I, I want people to see it. It's still a pretty amazing sight. There is a cliff wall, and carved into the, the cliff wall are all sorts of grottos and little crevices where, where idols, statues of Greek gods used to be placed back in the day, and people would come here to worship. It's a spectacular sight, and just a short walk away is this gorgeous waterfall. And by the way, if, if you talk to anybody who's been on a trip with me, they will tell you it's, the waterfall is not a short walk away, it's a long walk, because they always complain that Pastor Jim pushes them too hard. Don't listen to those wimps, okay? <laughs> it's a short walk to this beautiful waterfall. So it's a striking sight. Yeah. And, and this is where Jesus is revealed to be the Messiah, the Savior and King of the world, the Son of the living God. 
You know, we're calling this series Church on the Rock. Are you building your life on Jesus the Rock? You know, he had his disciples look around at all those false gods. And he said, in effect, you know, fellas, you could build your life on these other gods, but they're going to gravely disappoint you. They're powerless to help you. Or you could build your life on me. Now, I'm going to launch the church here. And it's going to be made up of people who surrender to me and build their lives on me. Are you going to be one of those people? Or are you going to give your life to false gods as your number one priority? I don't suspect that any of us who are gathered across our four campuses or watching online today, I don't suspect that any of us are worshiping false Greek gods, but what about the gods of our contemporary culture? What are the things we turn to when we're looking for a a pleasure fix? What do we turn to when we're looking for a sense of, of security or some purpose in life? Are we turning to Jesus, the rock, for these things? Or are we turning to maybe to material possessions. You know, when we need a pleasure fix, we turn to our house or our car, our clothes, our video games, our cell phone, our vacation getaways, our gym membership. Those things are lousy gods. They'll they'll give you just a a, a little, little blip of encouragement, but they don't deliver lasting satisfaction or security or significance. Another false god in our culture, I mean, material goods is a big one. Another false god is addiction. We are an addicted culture. People are addicted to alcohol. They're addicted to drugs. They're addicted to porn. They're addicted to shopping. They're addicted to working out. They're addicted to eating. You know, any number of things addict us. I read a book by an expert on addiction a couple of months ago, and he said, truly, our addictions are our go-to gods. They're what we worship. They're what we go to. When, when we're depressed and need to be picked up, when we're elated and we want to share the excitement with somebody, when we're stressed out and we need to chill, what do we turn to? That's our addiction. And so for the uh, alcoholic, it's, it's a bottle. You know, the bottle is the go-to God. Jesus says, I'm the rock. Turn to me. What about sex? Sex out of bounds. You know, immorality. It's another go-to God. What about sports in our culture today? You know, whether it's playing sports or taxing our kids to every sporting event under the sun or watching sports on TV or at the stadium, does the God of sports eclipse the real God in our lives? By giving it so much time and energy and attention, does it push Jesus into a corner? You know, I was, I was thinking about this last Sunday night after watching the Bears blow a 20-point lead in the fourth quarter. <laughs> to Green Bay. <laughs> and, you know, it was, the, it was the biggest comeback, fourth quarter comeback in Green Bay history over the last 100 years, and it happened to our Bears. <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, you know, as I watched the game, there's going to be a lot of grousing about this. A lot of people going to go to bed pained, 
in misery, and they're going to wake up tomorrow, and this is going to be the topic of conversation at school or around the water cooler at, at work. And sure enough, I, you know, I went to the gym to work out on, on Monday, and that's all anybody was talking about in the locker room. Oh, the bears, the bears, you know. And I thought to myself, you know, I went to bed last night after the game, and I didn't grouse at all, and I was a happy camper. And you know why? Because earlier that evening, I'd been at an Ignite service at our St. Charles campus, and it was awesome. In fact, almost 700, almost 700 people, almost 700 people across our four campuses were gathered to worship and to pray. I brought a guest with me from out of town, actually a pastor from Moscow, Russia, who's a friend of mine, and he said, this is unbelievable. He came home, he said, oh, that was so powerful. And so, yeah, I came home and I watched the, the Bears blow the game. But I, when I went to bed, I was still on a Jesus high. I mean it. I, I was still on it. And the next day, I'd, you know, I'd spend time with the Lord the night before. And I'll tell you, he's a rock. Sports God is going to let you down. And even when your sports God wins, guess what? It won't change your life one bit. It won't. You think, oh, yeah, I get it. Our sports God will lose. You know, and let... No, I mean, even when your sports God wins, it's not a win for you personally. That sports God will let you down. So here at Christ Community Church, one of our high expectations given to us by Jesus, is that we would confront the false gods of our culture and we would say, don't put your trust in those gods. Don't spend all your time and energy and resources on those gods. Go to Jesus. He's the rock. Build your life on him. You get it? Good. I think that's my second get it today. I don't know how many I get, but here's a, a fourth and final high expectations. Set people free. Jesus' expectations for the church, the fourth, set people free. One last look at Matthew 16, verse 19. Jesus is still speaking to Peter. He's speaking to Peter as a representative member of the church. Okay, so what he says is not just for Peter, it's for everybody who has surrendered to Jesus and is actively participating in a local church. So if that's you, this is Jesus speaking to you. Peter's your representative in this case. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Friends, this is an amazing truth. You and I, if we're part of a church, we have the opportunity to set people free. Jesus says he's giving us the keys with which to unlock their chains. Have you ever been handcuffed? Okay, it happened to me a number of years ago up at SBR, Silver Birch Ranch. Now, we send hundreds of kids, students, up to Silver Birch every year. Uh, this year, I think it was somewhere near 500 to 600 kids we sent up to SBR. But uh, some years ago, I was up there for a family camp parents and children, and I was the special speaker. And so uh, every day we would gather in an auditorium, and before I got up to speak, there was a, an MC for the program, and he was a prankish kind of guy, had a weird sense of humor. And so as an icebreaker, every day he would call a married couple up to the front, a husband and wife, and he would ask them some questions, kind of like a TV quiz show. And if they got the answers wrong, he would handcuff them to each other for the rest of the day. He wouldn't let them loose until dinner time. 
And so if you're the speaker at a gig like this, you know where this is going, right? You know you got a big target on your back. And sure enough, last day of camp, you know, Jim and Sue come on up here and they gave us some impossible questions and we answered them wrong and slap went the handcuffs. Now, I love my wife. <laughs> I really love spending time with Sue. But I don't like being handcuffed to Sue for a day. I am mildly claustrophobic. <laughs> and so it was with great relief at dinner time that Mr. Funny Pants came with the key and unlocked the handcuffs and set me free. Friends, Jesus is saying here, you got relatives, you got coworkers, you got buds at school, you got neighbors who are still chained to their sins and all the crud that comes with sin in our lives. And you've got the key. I've given you the key to set them free. I've given you the key to the kingdom of heaven. Now the key is the gospel. The key is the simple message that Christ has given us to share with others that, hey, when you surrender your life to Jesus, you know, he comes to live on the inside by his spirit and he forgives your sin and he cleans you from the inside out. And not only, that, not only does he overcome sin's penalty in your life, which would otherwise be death because you're separated from the giver of life, but he overcomes sin's power on a daily basis. He enables you, empowers you to live in a way you could never live on your own making you a new person. This is the message. This is the key. God, if you're a Christ follower, you've been given the key. Corporately as a church, we've been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Are we using the keys? Are we setting anybody free? Now, our next big opportunity corporately to do this, our next big opportunity is four weeks from today. This Gene McGuire guy, I've started reading through his autobiography, getting ready for the interview I'm going to do with him. 35 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. But in prison he found Christ. In prison he found the rock. In prison he found hope. Now you know some people who, who while, while they've never spent time in prison, right now they're going through a really difficult time. They feel like the walls have closed in on them. They need some hope. You all know someone in that category. Would you invite them four weeks from now? Don't invite them like the night before and then say, well, they couldn't make it. Invite them this week or next week. Say, hey, several weeks out. You know, we're, we, we, we kind of do this three times a year at Christ Community Church to give hope to our community. We call it inspiring stories because we know everybody could use a little hope. I want you to come with me. I'll take you out for a meal afterwards. You skin flints do that, okay? Take them out. Say, we'll take you out. Bring somebody with you. Now, I'm going to close in prayer, and then we're going to collect our gifts, our offerings, which is another way that the church gets built up, which is how we resource what God is doing. So as God has blessed you, you bring your tithe and your offering, and you say, yeah, I'm so pumped about being part of a church that is trying to live up to the expectations that Christ has held out to us, the high bar. And so we're going to give, and before we do that, though, I want to pray for you. Because I believe that there are some listening to me right now who've never been set free from their sins. They've never surrendered to Christ. And you're hearing all this about our focus on Jesus. And say, well, that's not been the focus of my life. 
it can begin to be your focus today. So pray with me. Let's bow together. Lord God, I want to pray for all those in DeKalb right now and down in Aurora and up in Streamwood and here in St. Charles who've never surrendered to Jesus. And they look just like the rest of us as we file in here. Nobody can tell who's, you know, who's following Jesus and for whom this is all a new thing. But I pray for those who've never bowed their knees, so to speak, never said, I give my life to you. And I pray that in this moment, in the quietness of their heart, that's what they do. And here's the kind of, kind of prayer you need to pray, friend, right now. You put it in your words. But it needs to go something like this. Oh, God, I've lived a lifetime of going my way instead of your way, doing my thing, ignorant of what you desire. And I understand today, I understand that that gets me in big trouble because I've disconnected from you and you are the giver of life. I stand condemned, facing the consequences of death. But today I've learned that Jesus took the death I deserve to die. And so I want to put my hope and my trust in Jesus. I want to say, Jesus, do it for me. Be my Savior. I want to turn from my sins. I want to follow Jesus, find out what it means to follow him. I I want this book that reveals him, this Bible. I want to learn what it says. Now, if that's you, if you've surrendered to Christ just now in this moment, you have taken the first step in a genuine walk with God. Something has happened on the inside that will begin to transform you from the inside out. And those of us who are believers... Is your focus on Jesus? Is he the rock of your life? Are you turning to false gods? What's your most likely false god? Can you renounce it right now? Say, oh, God, I so often get sucked into this or that. It's what I go to when I'm down, when I'm discouraged. It's what I go to when I'm stressed out. I should be going to you. Can you tell Jesus you want him to be the rock of your life? And can you say, I want to learn my way around your word? Help me to become a Bible reader and studier and applier. God, I just thank you for this book that has pointed us to you. I thank you for the keys to the kingdom that you've given us. And I pray for every one of us right now, God, we call onto the screen of our imagination, the face of somebody we know who needs to be set free, someone who could use the key that we hold in our hand, the good news about Jesus. And sometime between now and four weeks from now, God, give us an opportunity to open our mouths and say, hey, won't you come with me to church and get some hope in your life? I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.